think this is oh, the, Judy Fritkins, Judy Fritkins is nice. on her way also, yeah. Okay, so last week we, um, we were speaking about the word MS. Yes, and, and I thought, as I'm davening, yeah. every time I came by Emmett, I thought about it. Oh, I'm so the, glad the to hear that. that you said. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. Um, and how that word MS attaches to the paragraph before, and it also is the beginning of the paragraph following it. Um, yes, Abu Darham men, set, brings this halacha. He says, the Torah, um, if a person paused or waited, for example, Let's say you're saying Shema and you're in a shul where there's a minion. So you're saying Shema and you happen to say it faster than the person who's leading the davening. Mm -hmm. So you, you get to the end of Shema and you say, Lios lochem lelokim ani Hashem elokechem emes. But you don't go on because you're waiting for the chazin to say, you know, the Chazan always says out loud, Hashem Elokechem Emes, out loud. So now you've got a pause where you said, Hashem el Ani Hashem Elokechem. Now really, there's a plane. Ani Hashem Elokechem was the end of the Pasuk. But we're not supposed to leave any break between the word Elokechem and the word Emes. They have to be attached. So you say, Ani Hashem Elokechem Emes. And then you wait over there until the chazin catches up to there. Then what should you do when you hear the chazin say, Hashem Elokeichem Emes, you should not go back and say the word Emes again. Maybe you would think that since Emes is really the first word of the next paragraph, which is Emes V'yatziv V'nachon V'kayam, maybe you would think, oh, it's not nice. I, I had a long gap after the word MS, and I'm jumping in, and stable, or however you want to translate, and, and standing. It's a strange place to jump in. He says, no, that's what you should do. You should not repeat the word MS again. You should just start with the word V'yatsiv. And he says, many people um, err in this, and when they daven with the community, and they say their Shema quietly, and they say all the way through to Emes, and then they hear the Shaliach Tzibor, and then they go and they say the word Emes again, but that's not correct. And we concluded, I forget exactly, I would have to listen back, exactly what the context was that I jumped ahead, but we mentioned, um, here it quotes the, the Seder Hayom, the book Seder Hayom, saying that the source of this paragraph, Emes V'yatziv V'nachon, was from the Bnei HaGola, from the people who were outside in Golos, in Bavel, when Ezra was calling them to come back to Eretz Yisrael to rebuild the second temple, and they were not coming. But they wrote back and they provided this piece of prayer as a testimony to their eagerness to come back to Eretz Yisrael and their eagerness to be part of the Beis HaMikdash, despite the fact that they weren't doing it for other reasons. Okay, so that's kind of the history of it. 
there are, there's a few other points to this background of MS Vyatsev. So today's topic will be MS Vyatsev, and we'll see how far we can get, because there's some really awesome material here. Baruch Hashem. Okay. The Gemara teaches that a person has to say MS Vyatsev in Shachris and MS Ve'emuna in Mairiv. Well, the Gemara says Arvis, but we call it Mairiv more nowadays. Okay, and this is something you may have, you probably have noticed. If you've been in shul on Shabbos night and compared that to Shabbos day, at the end of Shema at night, it's not only on Shabbos, at the end of Shema at night, we say, Ani Hashem Lokechem, Emes Ve'emuna Kolzos. But during the daytime, we end with Emes Ve'atziv Nachon. So we always bridge with the word Emes, but where we go with it is different. So that's the Gemara. And it has to be said correctly. Okay. What is, the found, what is the principle behind the difference? That during the day we say MS V'yatsiv, and during the night we say MS V'emunah. It's because of the verse, Lahagid baboker chastecha ve'emunascha balelos. Lahagid baboker chastecha, to relate in the daytime, in the morning, your kindnesses, ve'emunascha balelos, and faith are emuna in Hashem at night. So this is a principle that is over and over and over again, often quoting that pasuk. The, the meaning of that pasuk is that by day, what we can talk about is what we see. In other words, it's illuminated, it's visible, Hashem's kindness to us is visible. It's talking about times of revelation. And v'emunas chabalelos is that in the night times, when it's dark, when we can't see Hashem's chesed to us, we relate our emuna. We talk about the fact that we trust, that we have faith in what he is doing is good, is chesed for us, even though it's not visible to us as such. That's a principle, and we've seen it many times, and you will continue to see it in many places. That's the principle that functions here. When we say the word emes, it's the truth. And we talked about last week, it's the truth. It's unchanging whether it's the nighttime or the daytime, the dark times or the, or the light times, the truth doesn't change. That MS, at nighttime, we can only call it MS ve'emuna, and we have faith in it. We don't maybe see it, or we have to work hard to see it, as opposed to in the daytime when we relate it openly, MS v'yatsiv v'nachon, and we're describing all these things. Now, it turns out... <coughs> It turns out that, um, as we're going to see, this idea is in fact the underlying theme of the paragraph altogether, of this whole part of davening. So it's not just tangential that Chazal said you should say it this way at night and this way in the day. It's actually fundamental to what we're saying. Because usually we don't change our davening night and day that way. We don't change the words. We might have a different avoda. We might say different things, more things, less things. But we don't, we don't say like a whole different Shemona Esrei. We don't, okay? There, there is actually a change to Shemona Esrei. We don't say a whole different Shemona Esrei. But here, it's fundamental to the concept, which we will get to, I hope, today. Because... I don't think we want to spend too many weeks on Yatsi Venachon, as amazing as it is. We want to get to Shrona Esrei. Okay. As we mentioned when we talked about Keo Melech Naaman, the repetition of the Chazin, when he says Hashem Elokechem Emes, adds three words to Shema. 
because now I've said the whole Shema, and then I also have, I'm Yotze on these three words that the Chazan said out loud. And that is the three words that I filled in with Kel Melech Neman when I added that only when I'm alone. Right? If you look in the Siddur, it will say one who is davening without a minion says Kel Melech Neman before Shema. This is the other end of it. This is what you're replacing with that. Here is another, um, another piece of history that is associated with this paragraph. The Sefer... Says that he sees in the writings of the Geonim, the Geonim are very, very early rabbis before the times of the Rishonim, but after the times of the Gemara. Emes Vyatsiv ad Hadavar Hazeh. From the word, actually, I put Emes Vyatsiv at the end of that one, all the way at the end here, I put the whole paragraph. Thank you. So, for different reasons, but it's useful. <laughs> so from the words Emes Vyatsiv until the words Hadavar Hazet, which I think is about as far as I went with this, did I even go that far? Hadavar Hazet, thing here, here. Hadavar Hazet, Leinu Leolam Okay, this is one letter. Igeris, as in like a letter, like a communication. This is one set, one piece. When Ezra, when the Basin of Ezra established that a person should say a hundred brachos every day, they sent to the exile. They wrote to all the people still out in Babel, and they said, is it your will to accept a hundred brachos? Do you agree? I don't know if they were asking so much of their opinion, or if they were saying, here's our intention to establish it, because there can be halacha, it, this, the chachamim can make a halacha or a takana, and if the people don't accept it, it falls away. So here they were informing them, but it does depend on whether the people as a whole will accept this. So they made a takana that everyone should say a hundred brachos, and they, they informed them out in the exile. Shalchulahem, and the people, the Bnei Hagola, wrote back, and they replied, Emes v'yatsiv v'nachon v'kayam v'yashar. This was their reply. Now it's interesting because it's two things from the same era, but it's two different questions. One of them was come to Eretz Yisrael, and one was accept a hundred brachos. I don't know how those two things interrelate, but these are the two pieces of sort of historical background to where this comes from. They're set in the same time, but it's a response to at least what appears to be on the surface a different question. And they, in their reply, uh, there's something you might notice. Now, you could miss it because when you're reading in Hebrew, which is not your native language, you might not hear the meaning of the words in what you're saying. Even if you understand the words, you have to understand them well to hear what you're saying and have it pop into your mind as words that mean something. But the way this is written is emes v'yatziv v'nachon v'kayam v'yashar v'ne'eman v'ahu v'chaviv. It's, if we, if we take this translation, so I'm going to grab one of those because I'm not on that page now. True and certain and established and enduring and fair and faithful and beloved and cherished and delightful and pleasant and awesome and powerful and correct and accepted and good and beautiful. We don't talk that way in English. You use commas. You don't use the word and. 
between every single adjective. Mm -hmm. By the way, you don't do that in Hebrew either. <laughs> okay, you just might not realize it when you're reading another language. And in fact, I put in here the, the Art Scroll Sitter's translation of this section of the paragraph. I didn't do the whole thing. I see it's not as long as the Hebrew that I brought. Mm -hmm. Um, but here, I'll read it to you. True and certain, established and enduring, fair and faithful, beloved. Meaning they're trying to capture the sense of all the ands without actually putting them all in because it sounds, it sounds just so bulky and unwieldy and incorrect. So they edited it a little. I can see that at least in accordance with the way that Rav Schwab teaches it, that's where they used as their foundation for that. But it's still a little bit even in Hebrew, it's a little strange to say it that way. Like in Yishtabach, they don't have the verbs. No, like no, no, no. There's it. nowhere where it would be grammatically a first choice to use so many vavs. You would use commas. And even in Hebrew, where in the older days they didn't use an actual comma, you would have an implied comma. You certainly wouldn't put it all the way through. You could put it every few words. You could put, you wouldn't do it like this. Okay. Their response includes 15 vavs, one after the other. Why? Because 15 vavs, it's this and, this and, this and, this. 15 vavs, 15 sixes, adds up to 90. Okay. And two he's, which I assume is hadavar hazeh. Because the Geonim quoted that from Emes Vyatsev until Hadavar Hazeh is all one letter. Not one letter as in alphabetic letter. It's one letter like, a, like you write a letter. It's an Igeris. The Megillah, Megillah Sesters also describes as an Igeris. Mm -hmm. okay. The words are connected by either vavs or hays. 15 vavs and two hays, which gets you 15 vavs is 90. And two hays is 10. In other words, 100. They said, yes, we accept the 100 brachos. Not just we accept it, it's MS. It's the truth. Which is a little different from saying we accept. We accept says, okay, right? But saying that it is true means we accept what your takana not because you came up with a novel solution to a problem, but because what you said is the truth, as it always has been and will continue to be. And so we accept the hundred brachos. Okay. So the hazer, the hadavar hazeh? Hadavar hazeh, yeah. And that, that's the ending of it according to that quote. That's the end of that piece. There you go. On the back of it, what she was looking at, we didn't use the front yet, but on the back I had included the paragraph of the Yatsivan, MSV Yatsivan Echon. So that's, she was just looking at that. You could use a sitter for that the same. Okay. Oh, okay, that's for the hundred, uh, based on the Vavs and the Hayes. Right. Because the, I don't know if you missed the beginning of this, that the Shiboli Haleket quotes the Geonim, who are the early rabbis just after the Talmudic era who said that from MS Vyatsev until the words Hadavar Hazeh, this is all one Igeris, one letter, that when Ezra and his Beisdin established the Takana that, a per, that everyone should say 100 brachos every day, they informed the people out in the Gullus, out in Bavel still, and said, do you accept this? And they wrote back, this was the text of their reply. 
Okay, so the text of their reply is it is true, it is everlasting, it is forever. And all the words joined together with 15 vavs and two hays, which adds up to 100. Okay, Rav David Cohen, switch the order here. Rav David Cohen in Masse's Kapai. I'm not sure what volume. Usually I try and write down what volume I'm taking it from because... I'm sorry, what is the name of the person? Rabbi David Cohen. Okay, thank you. He quotes the Tzalusa Davram, who brings that there are 18 kayams, the word kayam, lasting, enduring, in Emes Viatsiv. This is the longer paragraph, not just the section that we were looking at. Mm-hmm. That the Nesim of Eretz Yisrael sent in their response back. Now, it, it, what's possible here is that once they're counting the Vakayams, you're going all the way through to the end of the paragraph. So what it seems to me, I don't have enough information to be sure, it seems like up until the words Hadavar Hazet, or possibly Hadavar Hazet Aleinu Leolam Va'ed, certainly up to Hadavar Hazet, that was sent by the Jews of Bavel back to Ezra either in response to the request to come back to Israel or in response to the Takana of the 100 brachos or both. But the rest of the paragraph, where'd that come from? And it seems that the rest of this was, I, I, I don't understand exactly because it seems like it's an earlier time. So I don't know. I don't know if this is a different history of this paragraph. I don't know. Or if, the, or if the Jews of Bavel were writing back and they didn't compose the text. So they were responding from an existing text? I don't know. Or it's an alternative history. I'm not sure. That there are 18 kayams in this paragraph that were sent by the Nesim, the princes of Eretz Yisrael, to the Chachamim of Yavne at the time that they established the 18 brachos of Shmona Esrei. Because it was in the time of Yavne that they solidified the text. The text existed, but that they made word exactly which word and, and counted out all the words. I'm sorry, the MFVSC that they sent back goes up to That what seems point? to go up to Hadavar Hazeh. And where is Hadavar Hazeh? It's in the third or fourth line, something like that. Okay. Yeah, I got it. So what he's saying here is that they are adding, there are the 15 words of praise... MS, Yatsiv, Nachom, Vakayam, there's 15 words of praise, plus there are three Kayams. Lador Vador Hu Kayam, Ushmo Kayam, Kayames. Some say it's that, some say you shouldn't count. Okay, that makes 18. So it's a response to the 18 brachos of Shmona Esri. Now there's also Dvarav Chaim Vakayamim. His words live and endure which is also a word kayam, and Rav David Cohen suggests this is a pattern that he finds throughout the davening, that wherever there's a set of 18, which is the backbone of prayer, like in Shemona Esrei, but it's in other places. There are 18 mentions of God's name in Shemona Esrei, and there are 18 brachos in, in brachos, and there are 18 verses brought in Yehi Chavod and Pesuke de Zimra. Every part of davening actually is built on a sort of a armature of 18, blessings together, he said there's always a 19th that's added separately. That was added later. When they added the 19th bracha to Shemona Esrei, they added a 19 into all the other places where there had only been 18 before. 
And so the Chayamim, Chaim the Kayamim, he says, was possibly the 19th that was added afterwards. This is a pattern that he looks for over and over again. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm only getting five. Kayams. Five. That's because I didn't, five Kayam, that's, I didn't, bring I didn't the bring thing. the whole paragraph. Oh, okay. But there's, he's counting three and four. Starting with the Yetziv, the Nechon Kayam. He doesn't count that Vikayam. Doesn't count the It's the added Kayams. Yeah. Because that would count that word twice. So he's counting the first 15 words, which are the praise words, plus three kayams, plus a kayamim. He doesn't count the yesiv and the chum v'kayam. He, count, he counts them, he but he count doesn't them. count the word kayam twice. Oh, he said there's how many praise words? 15 words of praise. MS, I'm sorry, I made more than one set of this. On the first one, I went in and hand-numbered them, so oh. you could have them pre-counted. But this one I didn't, so MS. V'yatsiv, v'nachon, v'kayam, v'yashar, v'ne'eman, v'ahu, v'chavi, v'nechmar, v'naim, v'nora, v'adir, u'mesukan, u'mekubal, sorry, v'tov, v'yafet. Wait a minute, I just got sick. That's because you don't count the MS. I'm sorry. MS is not counted, and it's 15, not including MS. Oh, so it's 15 praises and three kayams. And three kayams added to that. Oh, okay. So one of, the first kayam that you found is, not, is, is already in the praise. It doesn't get counted two, set, two different times. Okay, and then there's the Chaim V'Kayamim, which he says was added to correspond to the 19th bracha. Okay, this was actually a side point. It wasn't the main point right now. Okay, and then he brings again this Tzalusa Davram, quoting the Shivoli Haleket, quoting Rabbeinu Shmuel, who founded the name of the Geonim, that it is one letter from Emes V'Yatzev to Hadavar Hazeh, because when they established a hundred brachos, they sent out to the Gola, is it your will to accept these hundred brachos? And they wrote back MSV Yatsiv. With 15 vavs, one after the other, adding up to 90, and two hays, which makes a hundred, corresponding to the hundred brachos. Okay, we talked about that. And the Rokeach says, if you count from MS until Zu, um, from MS until Zulasecha, which is not on this sheet, but in the Siddur, it's the next paragraph, Al Harishonim, Al Hachronim. If you count that paragraph as well, you have a hundred words. He says, adding the word who. I'm not sure where the word who comes in. I didn't, I didn't investigate this. This wasn't where I was really going with it, which also corresponds to the hundred brachos. And then he says, but we have to wonder, what is the connection between the hundred brachos and this paragraph? And he suggests as the answer, perhaps this is because the way this paragraph is described is, uh, sorry, not this paragraph, the halacha is mesoros biyadenu meavosenu. It is a mesoros. It's a tradition handed down from our forefathers that one should say a hundred brachos every day. And we learn this from the Torah, from the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim. There are different brachos that are brought, different verses that are brought to show that really Hashem wants us to say a hundred brachos. Why would you need verses to tell you that if that's your Mesorah? The answer is because it had been forgotten and it was only later in the time of Ezra that they reestablished, they realized that something had been lost and then they saw that there were sources in Tanakh for this and went ahead and made it a Takana. So this Takana was not something new. It wasn't just a brand new Takana. It was a takana that was based on an ancient tradition. 
And yet, as a halacha, it had been forgotten. And so people were not careful to say 100 brachos. There are people today who are careful to say 100 brachos every day. You sit down and they calculate how many brachos they ordinarily say in the day and how many on Shabbos when it's a little less because each Shmona Esrei has fewer brachos and they figure out how many more they have to say. So then it's a matter of tracking. If they see they missed something, then they, have to, then they try and make it up somehow. They might eat something extra in a snack. They might wash and bench at a meal that they wouldn't otherwise have. So you add a few brachos there. They might smell some bisamim, so they can make a bracha over that, or a beautiful flower, something like that. Because, in that way, because they're tracking. You don't have to count all hundred. You know what your baseline is, and then you can just tell what's missing. There are people who are very careful, because this is the halacha. What, what is that baseline number? Oh, gosh. It's a, I mean, it's easy. It's not so hard to say a hundred. I've looked it up in the, the calendar of Rav Yechiel Mechel Tukachinsky, which is still published. I mean, he's not still around. They it'll say on every day, like, note that today, because of Hallel, you know, you only need an extra such and such, you know, three brachos or whatever to make up your hundred brachos after you've done all your davening, things like that. And I don't know, I'm, poor Baruch is sitting over there knowing all the answers and listening to me, not knowing, but <laughs> I'm sure he's totally focused on learning. I'm sure he's, he's looking at you. <laughs> yeah, what's the baseline number of brachos, Baruch? For, for a regular wow. weekday. What is a, a person has to say 100 brachos a day. Yeah. So how many brachos do you have already after you've done your davening? Um, have, have you done the calculation? I know people do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, well, it depends, it, it depends a little bit because, you see, some people say, some people say the bracha of a Mekadosh um, in the morning, which I'm so that's another one, and some people don't. Some people, some, um, some people say you or Neinu do and some people don't. So that's, that, that's another one. But it could come out, if you say everything, it could come out for some people like 97. It's just a handful. It's and something it between like 2 and 6 or something. Oh, but that's not... not, that's, not that's, that's on weekdays. Uh, weekday, and, and also not... And also that, that's counting also. That's assuming you eat meals and, and, um, and, other, and other things. So you have to... Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, it depends. It depends. It depends on the person. It depends also... If, um, if you say Shasami Kitsono or not, if you're a, if a woman, some, some, some say with Shemashem, some say with Spiram, they don't say it. It depends if you say Anasim Layakoah or not. It it, yeah, that's the 19th one well, in, the, in the set. Sephardim yeah. don't say Shasani Kitsono? Yeah, so they don't say it with Shem and Malchus. Yeah, Sephardim are very, very, very strict in all halachos, uh, in all hilchos brachos. They will always err to the side of not saying God's name. Which well, is funny because in conversation they use it, but that they don't call that in vain. Why? But that. Why? why but why do you say that? About, I'm saying. I, I, I don't know. Just, I, 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 no, in Pesach there's a lot of places where uh, they'll call it a suffix lahakel, even where Ashkenazim won't. Right, but that's well. The reason though is because the Sephardic postman say not, not a lot of the postman say not that they don't have that. It's just something that doesn't show up in the It's. It's that, so, it's it's that they were asking, it came up it, later on they were, they made that bracha, so there was something the Saudi postman said not to say it, so they called that suffix law because Ashkenazi postman wants to say it. Right. Sure, so if the Ashkenazi postman would say not to say it, so then. then they, they, right. They well, if they said not to say it, then you wouldn't. Right. So Thank Sephardic, you. Sephardic women don't say that. 
my guess is that they say it, well, it probably depends what community they're from. Some maybe don't say it, and some I, say I it without any, God's I name. What shame umalchus? Shame umalchus with God's name. So they might say Baruch Shasani Kirtzono. Like so, it came up after the Gemara. It's after the Gemara. Does anybody know when it came up? Because I haven't had um, an answer to that. I've asked. Oh, I have some sources on that. We can oh, look at right. it, but so I, I, I won't do it. Doing. I won't do it now. Not now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The question that we had was roughly what's the baseline number? It's in the nineties. Okay. Even the high nineties. Some of the same davening. Or saying. right, if all, you're not saying all, all the, the davening, then you're not going to have. I. You're not going to have. The whole hundred, it would be harder for us to find. I don't think women are obligated in a hundred rubbles. I don't know. I was wondering about that because it doesn't say anywhere that they're father, and on the other hand, there's no way of doing it if you don't have it three times a day. Right. But it's very possible that women are obligated to daven three times a day. Right? Yeah, but I don't. It's not enough if you would just daven a basic shmona esrei and some things around that you still wouldn't get there. You'd have to do a lot more. You'd have to say the whole davening through three times a day. It's not enough to just say let's say shmona esrei and. Maybe Krishna. That's what breaks it. I mean, if you do three times on essay, so then you could make it up. You could <laughs> the rest you could catch up. For sure, especially even if you well, it's up, only 60. You go to like... once or twice a day, you know, and you make it up. <laughs> but, so. Okay. Okay. What we were saying. Thank you so much, Bar. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So that this was a halacha that had been somehow forgotten and was being reestablished. It's not clear whether it's a halacha for women. No, I, I've never. I mean, it will be interesting. We should ask. I will. I will try and follow up and ask about that. But it's. I've never heard it taught for women. It's probably considered. It's probably just because it's a takana. It doesn't. Yeah. I don't think it's it's obligatory on that. What is the definition of a takana? It means Chazal established it. It doesn't it's, mean it's halacha. It is the halacha, but it's not in the Torah. It's a takana so of the Chachamim. It's, it's like a It's a takana is a. Something that was established. Is it's a derabanan. So is any derabanan? Um, is any derabanan called a takana? It could be. It could be that there's a, a difference between. I don't. I have a feeling that there's a difference. There's gezera. There's takana. I think there may be a difference, but I don't know what it is. Okay. Sorry. So he says we could be sensitive here. And pick up on the fact that the verse from the Torah that's brought as the source for saying a hundred brachos a day is in Parshas Akev, we just read it, Vato Yisrael, and now Israel, Ma Hashem Elokech what does Hashem ask of you? Ki im liyiras Hashem Elokecha, if only to have awe of Hashem, your God, laleches b'chol derachav, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him, and to serve Hashem your Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul. In other words, there is a connection between the takana of saying a hundred brachos a day and awe of God. You're a Shemaim. What does Hashem mimach? What does Hashem ask of you? Only to have fear of God. And he says, therefore, perhaps this is why it is added on to the concept of Kriyashma in particular, this connection, this paragraph, which is a hint to the hundred brachos, because listen to what this said. It should, you should love Hashem with all your heart and all your soul, and you should have awe of Hashem and walk in all of his ways. 
that this is kind of the principle of the hundred brachos is a similar principle to the principle of Kriyashma, and therefore it's appropriate here. I think it's also possible, you know, the, the hint to it is, what is it Hashem asks of you? And they say, what does Hashem ask of you? Mea Hashem. A hundred Hashem asks of you. I mean, saying a hundred brachos, that's what Hashem asks of you. It's interesting that it's embedded in the word ma, what, which is a word of, I can't remember, I don't know, which is the, what happened with this hundred brachos. This law of a hundred brachos is a lost law that was recovered. Mm-hmm. And this is, what is it Hashem is asking of me? And the answer is, a hundred Hashem is asking of you, which is a reflection of how this takana came about. It's, it's pretty amazing how it's embedded into the pasuk in such a way that it even hints to what it is. Okay. That's sort of, let's call that, I don't know, historical background on Emes Viyatsi. Now, Rav Schwab. Does it count when we say, uh, like, thank you Hashem for this or that, we say it in our own words, that counts as a bracha or no? That definitely counts as tefillah, as prayer. I would assume that it probably doesn't count to the hundred blessings. If a person is trying to say a hundred blessings a day, it probably isn't counted as a bracha in that sense. I could be wrong. The women are also... I don't think so. I'm going to check with Rabbi after. I will ask him. But I do not not think that women are obligated to say a hundred brachas a day. (coughs) I've never heard of of a woman who tracks it, and I've never heard it taught to women. I don't think that women are obligated to a hundred brachas a day. But it's definitely davening. It's called the mitzvah of prayer when you say, thank you, Hashem. When you talk to God, that's called prayer. Okay. The Gemara states in Brachos Chaf Aleph, reciting davening, this prayer that starts with the words emes v'yatsiv is a fulfillment of the mitzvah's ase de oraisa of remembering Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. You can fulfill the mitzvah to remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim by saying this prayer, which... In this case, he's referring to this whole prayer through Ezra Savosenu, which includes the description of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. He says the Torah, it's very interesting. Who are we talking about? Rokiah is saying this? This is Rav Schwab, who is quoting the Gemara in Brachos. Quoting the Gemara in Brachos, 21 Amud Aleph. He says the Torah itself tells us to remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, but doesn't tell us the words we have to use. The Chachamim told us what to say, which is Parshas Tzitzis, known as Vayomer Hashem El Moshe Lemor, that's what we've been learning, and Emes Viyatsiv, this paragraph, similarly to the way that the Torah says, remember the Shabbos day and keep it holy. But the Torah doesn't tell us what words you say to remember it with. The Chachamim said, say Kiddush, mm-hmm. say it over wine. So that's typical for this kind of mitzvah of remembering that we look to the Chachamim to tell us which words are appropriate for that remembering. Now, he says, now we want to understand where this fits in to our map of the Beis HaMikdash. Where are we standing now? So this is going to have to take us back an awfully long way to remember where we've been standing all this time, if you forgot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So where we've been standing is in the Kodesh, in the Holy. We're in the Temple itself, but not in the Holy of Holies. That's the Kodesh HaKadoshim. That is Shemona Esrei. In Shema, 
we've been in the Kodesh. That's where the menorah is. That's where the Shulchan is. And that's where the Mizbeach HaZahav is. The Mizbeach HaZahav, and this, he doesn't quote Rav Hirsch here, but I know this is Rav Hirsch's approach. The Mizbeach HaZahav is where the Ketores is offered, the incense, which is the blend of all. And it's located in the middle directly across it, it would be facing the Aron in the Holy of Holies, if not for the fact that they're divided by a curtain, by a parochas. The menorah was on the left as you walked in, the shulchan was on the right, and the mezbeach hazahav at the center and farther in. So it's as if you have these two forces, the menorah representing the spiritual and the intellectual, and you have on the right the shulchan, the, the physical, and the the work, the food, the body, the physical effort, and you have them all come together at the Ketores, which offers up these herbs and spices into smoke and burns them up. This is a coming together of the physical and the spiritual together. That offering up is the offering up of our feelings, our emotions, and our intellectual faculties, right? We talked about that, that the intellect is, brings it together. The outer Mizbeach, he just reminds us, we knew this, the outer Mizbeach, which is where animal sacrifices are brought, that's the physical. That was, okay. So where are we then? We're between Shema, which is the Mizbeach HaKetores, and Shmona Esri, which is the Kodesh HaKodshim. So what's between them? The Parochas. He says this bracha, it's technically a bracha, from Emes V'yatziv all the way through to the words Baruch HaTo HaShem Go'al Yisrael, Blessed are you, Hashem, who redeems Israel. That bracha is the parochas. This is like amazing to realize this. Okay? We've learned so many things about parochas also. Not here, but in like uh, davening shurim and things, right? The parochas is is woven by the women who have the wisdom and the heart to want to give. They they had this way, remember, of spinning the wool right on the goats? (laughs) Okay. Now the parochas, what's the concept then of the parochas? The parochas is the dividing line that separates the Kodesh from the Kodesh HaKodeshim. Emes V'yatsiv is the dividing line between all of the preparation for tefillah and tefillah itself. Everywhere we've come into until here, and now we're ready to go in. In fact, Rav Schwab does not say this here, but elsewhere, there's a concept that if a person davens and gets up to Shema and Gaal Yisrael, but then doesn't say Shemona Esrei, it's as if you did all the preparation and you never came in. Well, you walked up to the door and you never knocked. <laughs> you just never walked in. This is there's all of this coming in. So, the parochas has two parts. I didn't have a chance to go back and look up. He's quoting, it's a Gemara in Yuma. 51, that the parochas has two parts. I think, and it's so speculative, it's, I shouldn't even say it, but the parochas, you know, on both, has two sides to it. And in order that it, sh- I'm not sure that that's the Gemara he's referring to, but in, when, you, when you weave and embroider a pattern, the back side, the reverse, is not usually that beautiful. So the way the I'm pretty sure the way the parochus was made was it was made of two sides that looped over so that either way you looked at it, it was the front side. 
there was no there was no reverse so to speak it was together two-sided we're going to come back to this the importance of this the parochas faces both directions the parochas faces out to where we have been coming in all this time from the Har Habayis into the Azara and the Chatzar, into the, into the Holy, into the Heichal, getting ready to walk into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, but it also faces the Kodesh HaKadoshim from the inside, which is expressive of its role in transitioning. It's not just a divider. The purpose of it, of course, is also to divide, but as we've said before, a machitza. A divider has two purposes. One is to separate us, and one is to allow us to draw nearer. When you have a mechitza, you can get much closer to, let's say, if you want to say mechitza and a shawl, you can get right up next to where the men's section is, no problem, because there's a mechitza. Okay, so you can hear, and you can see what's going on. You can have a mechitza as a concept of division between us and God. The physical serves as a mechitza between us and the spiritual world, but it also allows us to approach it more directly by shielding us from some of the power. Like the verse, Ki Hashem, Hashem interacts with us as the sun and as a shield. Because if the sun is directly on you, you can't withstand that for very long. So you need the sun and you need a shield from the sun. The parochas is serving two purposes. It's a separator, and it also is what allows us to draw very near. In this case, the parochas has two sides. So if you can somehow fully entrench yourself in this aspect of parochas, then you can use that as a transition. It faces out and it faces in. It does both. Okay. The first part, Emes V'yatsev, through Ein Elokim Zulasecha, which is V'yatsev V'nachon and Al HaRishonim, those two shorter paragraphs, these affirm the truths we expressed in Kriyashma. This is all one bracha. Ezra Savosenu, the long paragraph ending with the bracha of Ga Yisrael, focuses on redemption. So one says this is all true, we affirm it. The other looks forward to redemption. The symbolism of parochas, says Rav Schwab, is alluded to in this tefillah by the fact that the word emes appears six times. What does six have to do with it? Vav. Vav, yeah. But the parochas is not on a vav. But yeah, there, are, there, is, a whole, there is a connection between those vavs and the vavin of the, base, of the mishkan. There is a halacha that every strand of each of the four types of material in the parochas is made of six twisted strings. So six strings twisted together makes each, is how you make the material. That's the, that's the string, it's a string twisted of six strings. So there's MS six times. All four of the six-fold strands, the four types of the six-fold strands are combined together to make a whole thread. That's based on a Gemara Numa also which means there are 24 strands in each thread that weaves the parochas. And there are 24 sentences from Emes Vyatsev until Ga'al Yisrael. And he says, if you try and count it yourself, you may get the wrong total 
because the sidurim have the the editors of sidurim have added periods or colons, you know, that they use often for verses, depending on your sitter, have, have broken it up where they thought it made sense. But he says if you study the words and phrases, phrase by phrase, you can see that there are, he says, definitely 24 sentences in the tefillah. So he obviously where, did where? it, but they didn't bring it in the book. From Emes Vyatsev until Gaal Yisrael. Okay, so 24 sentences total. 24. So what? What does that mean? Because this is the nature of the parochas, that it's, 24, it's six strands of each of four types of material that are, that are twisted together. So okay. there are six emesses, and that builds up to 24 verses, and that are, that's what the parochas is woven out of, of okay. six-fourths. So, so that's to make us... Uh, this is an association with the parochas, okay. that the okay. nature of it is composed to reflect the nature of the parochas, because... The tefillos were written in order to correspond to the avoda of the Beis HaMikdash, and vice versa, <laughs> a little bit, okay? In order that the avoda of the Beis HaMikdash can be performed by davening, the davening is composed so that it is a true reflection of the nature of each stage of the avoda. Just as Ani Hashem Elokeichem should be followed immediately by MS without interruption. Hey, quiet in the peanut gallery up there. Thank you. The halacha requires that the bracha of Geula be followed immediately. Mm. So we do not interrupt between Baruch HaTashem Goal Yisrael and Shmona Esrei. To the extent that when you daven with a minion, the Shaliach Tzibor says all of this out loud. Mi chamocha ba'ilim Hashem, right? We sing even. Tzor Yisrael. And then he gets to the bracha, Baruch HaTashem, and he drops his voice. Goal Yisrael. He says it very quietly. Why? so that you won't say amen by mistake, out of habit, because it's, we always say amen when we hear a bracha. We don't even say amen to this bracha. It's a rather astonishing concept, because the bracha has to go directly into Shemona Esrei. Now, you'll remember that we also don't make any break between Ani Hashem Lokechem and Emes. In other words, Shema is joined to this parochas of Emes Vyatsiv, and Shemona Esrei is. It's that double sided nature of the parochas, that quality of the parochas, that it actually transitions you. We couldn't on our own. We're not allowed to go into the Kodesh HaKodeshim. We can't be prepared for that. So we couldn't on our own get into the level of, of tefillah, of Shema It is a purely spiritual place. We're, we're not really introducing it yet, okay? But we're transitioning. <laughs> we're doing a parochas. The parochas... If you can fully come into the parochas from one side, the parochas can bring you to come out the other side. Now, this is why, this is where I was leading to with this, and Rav <laughs> Schwab also is leading to this. In preparation for Shmona Esrei, we focus our minds on the miraculous events of Geulas Mitzrayim, the redemption from Egypt, which were clearly a manifestation of the personal involvement of HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself in our redemption. We read it in the Haggadah. Ani velo malach, ani velo saraf, ani velo shaliach, ani hu velo acher. I am not an angel. I am not a fiery angel. I am not a messenger. It is I alone, says God, and none other. <laughs> this is the frame of mind we need to begin our tefillah. Our, you remember we've said, the, the place we are in Shemona Esri is a place of enod movado. There is none other than him. 
Hashem is involved directly. And the way we get to a place of enod milvado is by thinking about and directing our thoughts to Hashem is personally involved with us and with me. And the deeper we get into that recognition and that mindset, Hashem is personally involved with me. Only Hashem is personally involved with me. There is nobody else who is acting upon me. It is only Him. The deeper we can get down that line, the more completely we become ready for Shmon Asrei, which is a place of, it's only Him. We came from a place of Shema. It's only the two of us. And we're moving from there to it's only him. Only he acts on me. Only he is involved. Okay, so that, I th- that was me adding on to Rav Schwab. He said this is the mindset we need to be in. I expounded on that a little bit in accordance with what we've learned previously. I want to take a small detour here to a, the first chapter of Rav Leichter's book on tefillah. The book on tefillah, which is focused on tefillah literally, meaning Shmon Esrei, not prayer in general only, um, which I believe helps to provide detail to what Rav Schwab said in short. What he said was, you have to connect directly smichas ke'ula le'tefillah. Redemption has to be, is, is the connection that gets you straight into Shmon Esrei. You cannot interrupt it. Because that is what brings you into Shemona Esrei. So why? And I think that I think that this chapter from Rav Leichter helps explain that. I gave sources on this source sheet. Um, Rav Leichter brings it only in English, and this this is an English translation. I think of a book he may have already written in Hebrew. So I brought the sources here so that you could have them in Hebrew also. Okay. Rav Leichter is addressing the question. Well, the, the chapter is entitled, What is Prayer? But his definition of prayer, he says, we have a misunderstanding. He says, we think, imagine a businessman who undertakes numerous tasks to ensure the success of his business. He researches market opportunities. He gets expert advice. He launches a marketing campaign. He hires talented professionals. We call this hishtadlus, making an effort. Okay. Okay. And if this businessman says to us that his greatest effort and his greatest hope is his davening, Mm -hmm. we would think, what a righteous man. That's amazing that he recognizes it's not just his physical efforts. It's not the advertisements. It's not the clever strategy and the business model that's with his success. The real reason that he has any success is his ishtadlus in his davening. He'd say, we think that's wonderful. That's a high level of faith, deep understanding of the power of prayer because he attributes more value to the effort invested in prayer than any other type of business acumen. He says, but that's not true. He says, prayer is not synonymous with hishtadlus. We think that, oh, you want to think of a, you're making a hishtadlus and you're a more holy spiritual person. You recognize that your hishtadlus really is in your daughter. He says, no. Prayer is not in the realm of effort. We don't call prayer hishtadlus. He says it bears no resemblance to it. 
So he kind of let us, you know, trapped us. Because when we make a hishtablos, we make an effort to pursue a goal, there's always a doubt. Maybe it'll be successful, maybe not. We know that the effort counts, even if you're not successful, but we don't know that we'll achieve our goal with it. But he says, davening, tefillah, is free of doubt. There is certainty with tefillah. Now, what does that mean? He didn't say it's certain that you will achieve, the, that you'll get the thing you asked for. He didn't say that. Okay. What it means is that maybe we didn't understand why we're davening then. We're not davening to ask, to make an effort to achieve our goals. The nature of what it means to daven is something different than that. And to, to talk about this, he starts with this medrash on the Red Sea. Kivan When the Jewish people got, were trapped at the Red Sea, and they saw that they were surrounded on three sides. The translation I brought is, is the English version in this passage of Rev Leifter. Okay. Hayam Soger. The sea was cutting them off on the fourth side. The Hasone Rodef. And the... Enemy is getting closer and closer to them. The Achayos min Habidbar. And the animals were um, threatening them from the wilderness. They suspended their eyes, they hung their eyes on their God in heaven, their Father in heaven. And they cried out to the Holy One, Blessed is He. As it says, And the Jewish people cried out to Hashem. Why did Hashem do this? I, I actually want to... Mm, do I want to do the whole thing? Okay, he, bring, he brings something. I, I wish I could give it over the way Rabbi Kellerman does. You know, he tells this medrash over, and he acts it all out, and it's like very dramatic and romantic. Okay. Why did Hashem do this to them? Why did Hashem create a situation where the Jews felt trapped? Um, guys? We're not going to... Okay. <laughs> Why did Hashem do this to them like this? Why did he put them in a situation where they would be trapped? He just took them out of Egypt. They could have just kept going. There's nothing inevitable. There's no reason why, the, why Paro should chase them again after everything that happened. And there's no reason why even if he did chase them, they shouldn't be able to escape. He did it in order that they should daven and cry out to him. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this is a little bit disturbing, really, when you hear this. Hashem puts us under pressure in order that we should daven? That doesn't, you know, if you've learned a lot, so maybe you take it in the right way. But if you haven't learned a lot, it, it sounds almost sadistic. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you suffer for what I want? It, it's really a very concerning statement that the Medrash is saying here. And it says it in other places. Why were, the, why were our forefathers, the, the, the Avos and the Imahos, barren? Because Hashem, it's the same principle. Hashem desires their prayers. But it turns out it's better for us. Of course it is. But it doesn't sound so nice. So Rabbi Yoshua bin Levi compared it. He gave a mashal. He said, what is it similar to? To a king who is riding along the way, he's traveling, and a, he hears a princess calling out, save me, save me. There's bandits. And the king hears this cry, a, a damsel in distress, and he runs off to save her. And several days later, he asks her to marry him. 
He wants to talk to her, and she refuses to even speak to him. He can't even propose because she doesn't want to talk to him. So what did he do? He hires bandits. And the next time she goes out for a walk, she gets threatened by bandits. She screams out. The king comes, saves her again. And she cries, she cry, and she says, oh, thank you, thank you. And he says, you know, this is what I was waiting for. I was waiting to hear your voice. I was waiting to talk to you. So to the Jewish people, we were in Mitzrayim, they were in Mitzrayim, and they were enslaved. And they began to cry out and depend their eyes, to, to, to look up and depend on God in heaven. By the way, that was rather late. As you may recall from the davening shirim a year ago or so, when they cried out to Hashem, that's when Ramchal said, that's when the switch flipped. That's when, and Hashem remembered them, and he remembered the covenant. It happened late. Somehow we were enduring and enduring, like but we weren't actually slavery. crying out to Hashem. Right, well, even if you just say the hard slavery, it was 80-something years, right? So we were somehow enduring all this pressure and suffering and crying, but not crying out to Hashem. Being trapped and realizing in the moment of entrapment, helpless, not hopeless, right? But to get to helpless and not hopeless takes first that moment of feeling hopeless and realizing, I have no hope. We have no one upon whom we can rely. Only on Hashem in heaven. You can already start to see how if the place I need to get to is a place where I recognize Hashem is involved in my life, and move from there to only Hashem is involved in my life. He is the one who has total control and is totally involved in my life. That there is a similarity between that headspace and a headspace where a person feels, maybe I can try this. No, maybe I can look that way. Maybe I can turn that way, run back that way. I'm trapped. There is nowhere I can turn to. There's Hashem. That, that going from hopeless to helpless back, from, from helpless, from hopeless to helpless and back to sort of like recognizing that I have help from Hashem, that he is involved in my life, that I can turn to him, so and relate? realizing that I can only turn to him. He's the only one. Relate back to the, the talking about his toddlers, though. Yeah, we're going to get back to it. That was, this is the beginning. Okay. That's why I said, I was thinking maybe I won't do the whole passage, but... I think we need to. Okay. As the verse says in Shmos, And it was in those many days, and they cried out to Hashem. And immediately, Hashem saw the Jewish people, and he started to see what their situation was, and he took them out of there, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu sought to hear their voice. And they didn't speak up again. I mean, on the one hand, Hashem took them out, and on the other hand, all of a sudden they weren't calling out for help anymore. They weren't calling out to Hashem. So he incited, he, he tickled up Paro to get him to go and chase after them. And Paro Hikriv, Paro drew closer, which, as we also have learned, Paro Hikriv mean, could mean Paro drew them closer. He drew the Jewish people closer to Hashem. And the Jewish people cried out to Hashem. And in that moment, Hashem says, I was waiting for that. I was waiting to hear your voice. 
as the Pasuk and Shir Hashirim says, Yonasi Bechagve Hasela, my dove is in the cleft of the rock, Hashmi'ini Ko, sound your voice out to me. It doesn't say sound a voice, it's Hashmi'ini Es Kolech, make your voice heard. It's you I want to hear. It's that you that I heard before. That's the voice I want to hear again. When they davened and they cried out to Hashem, Hashem says to Moshe, why are you standing here and davening? They've already davened to me. Go on forward. Okay, we don't have an answer here yet, by the way. <laughs> I think we have more, if anything, a question than an answer. Okay. Except that we are a little bit more equipped because we've learned Shema. And one of the things we learned about the end of Shema is the importance of feeling the need to draw close to Hashem. The place we get to when we've fallen down and we want to get back up again and never let it happen again. That comes from falling down. It's only someone who's fallen down and had that desperate feeling, I don't know if I can stand up again. I've sinned. I don't know if I can return to Hashem. It's only from that place that you really can, can desire to get close to Hashem so badly. Okay, that, was, that was the core element. It, we saw it straight through. We especially talked about it in the introduction to the third paragraph of Shema. Okay, but, but, on the one hand, what Hazal seemed to say is so great about their davening at the, at the Red Sea is that we're is that we're davening out of desperation. There is no recourse. We can only turn to Hashem. There's nowhere to run. Why is that so great, Rabbi Leichter says? Isn't that like, <laughs> what choice did you have? No atheists in a foxhole. Like, so you daven. Hey, what about davening when you're not stuck in the foxhole, when you're not trapped? Also, what does it mean Hashem desires their prayers if it's all a fabricated situation just to get us to daven? Right? That's so disturbing, that image of the king hiring bandits. To, yeah. Like, what is that about? That's coercion. So they have no other choice but to cry out to him. But how romantic is that? Like, now the king wants to marry her? And if she knew, would she want to marry him? Like, what's, what's that about? Okay. So then he looks at Mesilas Yasharm. I didn't bring that source over here. The first of the three things that a person must consider to acquire Yiras Hashem is he must know that he is actually standing in the presence of the Creator, Baruch Hu, and is no se vinotain. Okay, now no se vinotain, um, the, the normal translation of that is negotiating or making an exchange. It's usually a business term. Masa umatan is doing business, making trade. Not Rabbi Leichter, I am pointing out that no save and no tain means uh, picking up and giving. Because that's the literal image of making an exchange or a trade. I pick up what belongs to you or your money or your barter and I give you something. I give you money or a product. So, and that's why, by the way, the picking up is important, right? Because we know that to make a halachic transaction. We say it comes from picking up. If it's something that you can't tangibly pick up or it's heavy to pick up, you might pick up a pen or a handkerchief, right? You're the rabbi who hands a handkerchief here. You pick it up. Now you pick it up. 
no save and no tain, the picking up and the giving. That's how the deal is done. With Hashem, that's what you have to be thinking of, that you're in a no save and no tain with Hashem, says Mesil Shisharm, even though Hashem cannot be seen. This is the hardest of the three things to consider for a person to create a true picture of this idea in his heart when he is not helped by his senses. We can't see Hashem. I thought there were only two things, being in Hashem's presence. He says the first of three things that a person must consider, but we're not reading all three things. This is one. This is what a person has to consider to acquire fear of God. That when he's davening, he is standing in the presence of creator and no save and no saying with him. However, one who is of sound intellect will, with a little thought and attention, this is still Masil Sasharn, be able to implant in his heart the truth of how he is actually no save and no tain with the Blessed One. He implores before him and entreats him, and the Holy One listens to him and is attentive to his words in the same way that a man speaking to a friend is heard and listened to. Now, Rav Leichter's main point that he wants to, that he seems to be bringing out from Asilas Yesharim is the idea that when we are standing in God's presence in tefillah, in prayer, we are in a situation of no save and no taint. There is a give and take. There's something we're giving and there's something we're receiving. We're not just receiving. There's giving and there's receiving. Now that only happens when we're both interested in the same things. Meaning, Hashem is interested in something from us. He's interested in us and we're interested in Him. If there's no common interest, then there's no no save and no taint. Rav Leifter compares it to someone who, I forget, he has like a, a man who has some kind of, you know, he invents a new kind of toothpaste. He's, there's no no save and no tain with a shoe factory. Hello, mommy. Because there's no common interest. There's no mutual interest there. It's only when in some way we have a shared interest that there's something to talk about for a no save and no tain. You don't have, no save and no tain means we have something that we share an interest in. So therefore, we feel that if I give what I have to offer and you give what you have to offer, we'll both come away feeling we're better off than we were before. He says, the Mesila Shisharim, in describing prayer as Masa Umatan with Hashem, is making clear that Hashem is not just the source of everything we receive. He's personally interested in our request. In order to daven Shmona Esrei, we have to implant firmly in our minds the feeling that Hashem is personally interested in us. He wants to hear me talk to him. It's not just, I want something, so I'm asking because he's the source of everything. I'm approaching Hashem with my words because I believe he is interested in my words. I don't go pitch my product, right? We do 3D touch technology. I don't go bring that to somebody that I don't think has any interest in it. That's a waste of time. I did that once, not by mistake, but because the person did me a favor. I have a cousin who works in venture capital. And before I ever 
showed what I was working on to anyone to any other investor, he said, "Why don't you come up and give us a pitch?" Correct. They were in biotechnology, healthcare stuff. The co that cousin is a pharmacist. <laughs> Doesn't. They have no interest in 3D touch technologies, at least not at that time. That was outside of their scope of interest. So he was doing me a favor so that he could give me feedback and say, well, here's how you could make it a more successful presentation. Here's the kind of feedback you'll get. That was a favor, okay? But I would not, that was the only time I ever pitched to a biotech venture capital fund. Why? Because we don't share an interest. They're not interested in hearing me. I only go to talk to someone when I think they're interested. By the way, um, children, not only children, we're all children in some ways, right? But children, they're only going to share with you what's on their mind so long as they believe you're interested. But the words are what bring you together. The words are what bond you to each other, right? How many of us, how many times are you going to talk to somebody if after a while you start to feel they're not interested? They keep cutting you off. They keep turning away. Their back is to you. They went to do something else in the middle. They hung up on you. At some point, you stop talking to them, right? So before I daven Shmona Esrei, I need to be in a place where I feel Hashem wants to hear from me. He's interested in me. We've talked about this idea many times in terms of the snake and Hashem saying to the snake in Gan Eden, eat dirt. Another, and crawl on your belly. You be down where your food is. You'll never have a trouble finding food. Just don't ever call me again. Versus Adam, where Hashem said to Adam, you'll eat by the sweat of your brow. It will be difficult. But because it's difficult, you're going to talk to me all the time. I want to talk to you. Which is better? Of course, it's better. Of course we want Hashem to be interested in us. We have to understand that all of our needs are a matter of his personal concern. If not, if it's that just that hishtadless idea, then prayer becomes no more than a person's expression of dependency on, the, on his creator. It's what we thought it meant. We're trapped at the sea, so we're dependent on God, so we pray to him, but that's not a relationship, that's just being dependent. In Maso Matan, the sides have a kind of equality. There's a kind of you need both parties. You need both parties, because each one has something they're giving and something they're taking. So prayer is not like hishtablus, which may or may not be fruitful. Prayer has a guaranteed outcome. Why is it guaranteed? Hashem is interested in our needs, and he wants to bestow goodness on us. It's not just another thing we're trying to get what we want. The purpose of prayer is to engage Hashem in what we might call a face-to-face -face dialogue, a panim el -pani, a personal dynamic encounter, and that is guaranteed. We don't always know how our prayers will be responded to, but we know they will be responded to because it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. It's a give and take. It's a pick up and they give. It's an exchange. We present Hashem with our requests from our perspective. We discuss them with him. We might even argue with him over them. And in turn, Hashem's presence is evident in our lives. And when we feel his presence, the outcome will definitely be the best possible bestowment of goodness upon us because his desire is to bestow goodness upon his creatures. 
Hashem wants to take us across the Yamsuf. He wants to set us free from the Egyptians. The king doesn't want the woman he loves to be attacked by bandits. The goal is to do good for them. But the goal is to give and do good in the context of a relationship and communication and talking. I want to hear from you. You forgot me? You went and walked away somewhere else? Then if I keep on giving to you while you're walking away, will you ever turn back around? Will you ever say, oh, what happened? You'll never notice that you walked away. And we've mentioned this many times. The purpose of chaser, of chisaron, the purpose of lack, the purpose of pain is to remind us that we're missing something. That's what it's for. It's in the place where something hurts that we build a bridge, that we reach for God. It reminds us to talk to him. We get hungry twice a day, technically, many more times a day than that in our generation. <laughs> we get hungry twice a day or three times a day because we need to remember to say a bracha over food and say, Hashem, I, I really can't make it on my own. I need food. My body can't just keep going without more being put into it. Thank you for providing for me. I cannot keep going without you putting in for me. We daven three times a day because our soul needs to be fed twice, three times a day. We need to feel the lack to remind us. Now, if we don't need to feel the lack to remember, great. But the purpose of the need, there's no reason we have to need anything. God can provide everything. The purpose of feeling need is to remind us that Hashem wants to hear from us. This is particularly important when we feel need and we feel hopeless. Because when we feel hopeless, that is a feeling that God is not interested in me. That's, God forbid, it's not true, but it's a feeling that way. That things are so dark and so terrible and there's no way out and Hashem isn't hearing me. That's the darkness. And when we remember, wait a minute, the only reason for me to feel pain or hunger or loneliness is to remind me that Hashem wants to hear from me. He wants to give to me. He wants to make me fed, not hungry. He wants to have a relationship with me that I not be lonely. The only reason for those things to exist is to remind us what Hashem wants with us. So then we turn back to Him. And this helps us to understand why the Medrash praises the davening of the Jewish people at the sea. It is only hard to understand if we think of the desperation or the prayer situation as stripping away illusions of independence and self-sufficiency. But the davening at the Red Sea served a different purpose. The purpose of the tefillah at the Red Sea, of crying out to God, was to clarify and affirm their complete and unwavering belief that Hashem was personally concerned with their well-being even at that terrifying moment. That is worth saying again. The purpose of the prayer at the Red Sea, of crying out to God, was to clarify and affirm their complete and unwavering belief <coughs> that Hashem was personally concerned with their well-being even at that terrifying moment. Now remember, the thought that I have to have in order to daven Shemona Esrei, in order to, to cross the parochas, is Hashem is personally interested in my well-being. Because that will lead me to 
There is no one who can provide for my well-being other than him, and he is interested in doing it. There is only he who can provide. There is only he. That's it. Okay, this is a process that takes us from one side of the parochas to the other side of the parochas. That is the process of Shema, of Emes Vyatsiv, sorry, of this bracha. It takes us from, I am Hashem, your God. I'm your God who took you out of Egypt to be your God. Emes, we say, that is the truth. And it is true, and it is true, and it is true, and it is true, and it is true. And then we transition to, he took us out of Egypt and he took us across the sea. And we remember that we crossed the sea and we sang out to Hashem. And we said, Hashem yimloch leolam va'ed. There is a hamlacha, a making Hashem king, which was the avoda of Shema. That hamlacha carries us through to say, Hashem is interested in me. That is that connection between recognizing Hashem is the one who saves me. I'm stuck, Hashem saves me. And it's interesting because we use Az Yashir in Psuke de Zimra and we refer back to it over here between Shema and Shemona Esri. <clears throat> okay. Another example of this, says Rav Leichter. Now it's really very late. Okay, I'm going to finish this piece from Rav Leichter and we will continue Emes Vyatsiv next, next week, I hope. Okay. If we look at the Nefesh HaChayim, which is on the second side of this source sheet, I'm just going to read the English because it will be faster. At the time of the splitting of the Red Sea, Hashem said to Moshe, Why do you cry out to me? Speak to Bnei Yisrael and let them journey, which means the matter depends on them. If they will be firm in their trust and belief and travel towards the sea, secure in their hearts and not fearful due to the strength of their faith, it will split. This will cause an awakening above and ensure that a miracle will be done for them and the sea will split before them. Now, this seems to be the opposite of Rashi's approach. Rashi, when Hashem says to Moshe, why do you cry out to me? Um, why do you cry out to me, Hashem says to Moshe? Rashi says the way you should read it is why do you cry out to me? Meaning this matter is my responsibility, says God not your responsibility. If it was your job, then you'd have to keep davening. It's my job, I'll take care of it. That seems the opposite. That makes it God's job, according to Rashi. But according to Nefesh HaChayim, whose job is it? People's. It's the Jewish people's job. They have to have faith, and they have to daven, and they, right? That's what it depends on. So it seems like these are two different approaches. The Nefesh HaChayim states the matter is in the hands of Bnei Yisrael. It was dependent on their prayer. But the nature of their prayer is what? Now we learn something different. The nature of their prayer was not requesting needs. It was the crying out. Crying out is not with words. You're not saying what you need. Crying out is the recognition that their needs are the personal business of God. This is what Rashi means when he says, Hashem says, the matter is my responsibility. It's not, don't dove, it's not, is it your job, is it my job? The Jewish people's job, it's both sides. It's masa umatan, because the Jewish people in crying out, crying to Hashem, are saying, you, you are interested in me, so I'm crying to you, even without saying what it is I want. And Hashem said, it's my responsibility to provide. That is the prayer. 
He's retranslating the Rashi. Matitzak, what should you cry out? A lie to me. That's what you should cry out. The, the, the text of your prayer, the purpose of your prayer should be that it's to me. That's what matters about it. Not what you said. It's that you are crying out to Hashem, that it is he who is interested and responsible for your well-being. And then we can understand better the end of that first medrash. Once they had prayed, the Holy One, blessed is he, said to Moshe, why are you standing and praying? The prayers of my children have preceded yours. Their prayer caused there to be no need for Moshe to cry out to Hashem. It was through the prayers, through recognizing that their troubles were Hashem's concern, that he was interested and he did feel responsible for them. That brought about the change in reality. When we have to connect Geula to Tefillah, it's a key, it's so key that we don't even say Amen to the Bracha of Geula. The splitting of the Red Sea revealed that Hashem is interested in what's best for us. Its invocation is the perfect foundation for prayer. So I'm going to go back. Remember what Rav Schwab said. In preparation for Shemona Esrei, we focus our minds on the miraculous events of Geulas Mitzrayim, which were clearly a manifestation of the personal involvement of HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself in the redemption. Ani velo malach, ani velo saraf, ani velo hashaliach, ani hu velo acher. Only him and he directly. This is the prerequisite to any prayer we wish to say before Hashem. Recognizing that our needs are in reality Hashem's personal concern. It enables us to approach him and engage him in a conversation. If we didn't think he was interested, then how do you approach him directly? How do you ever have the nerve? Okay, so we're going to stop here because it's quite late, and we are, in fact, going to have a second class <laughs> on MS Viati. Um, and connecting that through to Shimon Esri. Okay. Thank you so much. So.